I think the commitment of the Royal Commission moving forward to build what it does on human rights principles, I think it will bring everyone together. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. My name is Ashtonif and this is part one of a two-part investigation into the upcoming Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety in Australia. Our guest for today is Daniela Greenwood, who after many years working in residential aged care settings, now consults aged care providers and most recently was part of a panel advising the Royal Commission on issues of technology and innovation. In this episode, we get right into the issues that the Royal Commission needs to address and the model through which Daniela believes it will happen. Daniela is very forthright about the need for standards, consistency and accountability throughout the industry and about the role government should play in driving change. For our international listeners, this episode and the next will be quite Australia-centric, but the problems being tackled are universal. How do we make an aged care system that safeguards the human rights of older adults? So I hope you enjoy part one of our two-episode special on the Royal Commission with Daniela Greenwood. Daniela, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Can we start uh, with a little bit about your background and, and how you got to where you are now? Previous to working in the senior aged care space, uh, I was in the arts in a completely different profession and ended up volunteering in aged care one day and fell in love, went back to uni, worked as from everything from a volunteer to a personal carer to a lifestyle coordinator. Then I studied long distance to get a degree around lifestyle, therapeutic recreation and um, worked in a range of roles across aged care and came to it from probably a different perspective than people who'd come from a medical background or had been in it their whole lives. You know, you see kind of possibilities when you enter something new. So um, I worked for a few different organisations and then eventually worked my way up and my last role as an organisation was with Arcare where I was National Strategy and Innovation Manager and um, I also supported lifestyle at the same time and had a fantastic time with Arcare actually and then went out onto my own as a consultant around three years ago. Arcare were my first client for about six months and then um, I've worked with quite a few different organisations here in Australia and in Canada and in the US since then. So that's my, um, I just recently finished an honours degree, a dissertation that looked at long-term care and residential aged care settings and specifically people living in the moderate to later stages of dementia and, and what human rights and citizenship meant for people who were at that level of vulnerability living in institutions. Oh, fantastic. And uh, I do want to touch on the, the human rights stuff in a little bit, but maybe we can we can dip into your consulting work here. What kind of circumstances are you often brought in to help an aged care provider? 
That's a, a great question. Someone said to me, do you have a website or a business card? And that isn't kind of my deal. <laughs> um, since I left Arcare, I've been lucky enough to be able to get invited to be engaged in really with good organisations and, and good projects. And it means that I've got the space, thankfully, to not get involved in things that I'm not connected to or, or don't feel that ethical. The first few things I was hired for was to put in a model of staffing that I introduced at Arcare and we trialled and then introduced across the whole organisation and that's consistent staff assignment. When I was with Arcare, we called it dedicated staff assignment, but it just means that the same staff work with exactly the same residents every time they come to work. And that was one of the things, like I said earlier, you would think, well, wouldn't they be doing that anyway? I know when I said to my mum, I've come up with this new model and we've researched it for a year. And when I told her what it was, she said, yeah, but wouldn't that be what they did? <laughs> and you would think it was common sense. What people don't know is that even in institutions where it looks like you see the same faces. If you've got about 100 residents in one of those big places, you're looking at any one resident over a month having between 28 to 49 different people having access to their naked body. Wow. And you could talk about all of the, the medical and clinical benefits of having a consistent person, but at the end of the day, it's just asking ourselves, how many different people do you want taking you to the toilet? Yeah. And that's the kind of question we do need to ask because this is us in aged care if we're lucky enough. They're not others, they're us. Do we, do we really want a system that allows that to happen and just thinks it's okay? I remember when I first researched it, one man I was talking to, I said, well, tell me about what it was like before you had this consistency and after. And he just said, look, it's confronting enough to be physically vulnerable to the point where you need help in the shower and especially need help, you know, going to the toilet. They're really, really confronting and and it's a vulnerable place to be. So you have the same couple of people assisting you with that. You get used to it. You know, you can build up a kind of relationship. But if it's a different and all the time, your humanity and dignity just, where does that go? Yeah. It's terrifying to think about yourself in that position and, yeah. and how, I don't know how I would cope in that sort of circumstance. So I know that consistent staffing assignment is something that's, it's talked about more these days, but there are still some barriers preventing from its widespread implementation. What do you think is the biggest barrier that needs to be overcome? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Having worked with so many different types of organisations implementing this now, from really tiny places to the small household models to really big institutions, and again, in the US, Canada and Australia, and I would say the very first thing that is the biggest barrier is the fact that it's not seen as an immediate non-negotiable operational imperative. That it's seen that, you know, organisations might think, oh, look, we'd really like to do it, but it's hard to get our staff to... Like it never should have gotten to that stage. 
This is a basic human right around dignity um, and there's a whole lot of other reasons it's related to human rights too in terms of decision-making. If you've got dementia or you express yourself non-verbally, you know when you know someone really well, even if they're smiling, you can kind of tell if they're in pain. Like my Mm -hmm. sister gets this kind of wooden smile and I know she's got that lower back pain. Can you imagine being in that space and being around people who knew you so well that they were like, "Mm, something's not right with John. I'm a bit worried. You know, this is like, I think he might be in pain or I think there's something that he's not liking here. It's um, the fact that organisations, that the industry, that we as humans haven't just said, this is the only way we do this and we'll sort out details after that. Mm. We have to do this. You wouldn't talk someone in a maternity ward into trying to feed babies. You wouldn't say, it would be nice if they fed the babies, but it's hard to get our nurses to, you know. (laughs) And that's kind of where a bit of ageism comes in. It's professionals work in this space and haven't thought to themselves, wow, that's a lot of different people helping these really vulnerable people. And the fact that, that that's accepted that's the first thing we need to look at. Why is it so invisible how horrific that is? Mm. Once we can get past that, I think it, this is where it needs to be built into the legislation. It needs to be built into if you are going to say that you're an aged care provider, this is what you need to do. Hmm. That sounds like it's going to require massive reforms, maybe led from legislation, as you're saying, but the, the sort of changes that need to be made across the whole industry to make that possible would be massive. I think as soon as the powers that be use whatever legislative power and expectations around compliance, as soon as it becomes that, believe me, organisations will find a way. And look, I've worked with staff implementing this and and never have I found staff who want to go back doing it the other way. Yeah, it, it feels like a no-brainer. Yeah, it is. It's it's And it's just crazy that it's still seen as an aspirational goal. And I think kind of linking in with where you wanted to go with the Royal Commission and or, or even thinking about human rights in terms of how that all links, I think that's what a human rights lens brings. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've, you've used a really powerful quote from C.S. Lewis, if I might just quote you here. A tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. So that's implying some pretty dangerous misunderstandings, right? What do you think some of these are? I think the second half of that quote is the most important because it goes on to say, those who torment us for our own good, they'll torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. Mm -hmm. So you can have really awful people who've got no morals and do terrible things to people and and even they will occasionally go, maybe I crossed the line there. But when people think they're doing good, their conscience isn't going to kick in. Mm -hmm. So that quote is used as a fantastic, one of the best definitions of paternalism that I've heard. You know, we've got do-gooders doing things that think are really good and it's actually really oppressive stuff and and the people most vulnerable, of course, to that kind of oppression by well-meaning people mm. are the vulnerable people living in institutions and particularly people living with dementia. You've kind of a perfect storm. This system in Australia that calls itself market-based, you know, we're going for a market-based aged care system, mm. 
And that's supposedly going to inspire innovation and it's supposedly going to make providers really compete with one another. But what they've missed in this little equation is, or perhaps not missed, but um, strategically forgotten, is that those vulnerable people aren't consumers. These aren't people who can engage themselves in complaint processes. These aren't people who can vote with their hip pocket. These aren't people who can say, well, I'm paying so much money for this and this is a terrible service, I'm going to move somewhere else. That's not the way it works. So you've got really people thinking they're doing something for someone's own good and a lot of that comes from that medical model. And when I say medical model, it's, it's kind of a sociological term that talks about human beings being seen for their deficits and coming under the purview of medical experts, like old age is now seen as a sickness that's Mm. controlled by medical people, rather than as a blessing that we know. We're not surprised that people get vulnerable. We're stuck in these bodies, you know, they break down. Um, And our brains, bodies, they break down in different ways, uniquely to each person, but they don't go on forever as is. So the idea that we can't build institutions that support that part of people's lives and just try and make it amazing for them rather than all of these approaches that are so based on making people do things for their own good. I was reading just today about something, this wonderful idea of you know improving food in aged care and I, I couldn't agree more. But then it goes straight to nutritionists. And again, as I said at my Royal Commission and the, the commissioner laughed, I said, um, well, what if I don't want nutritious food? What if I want like red wine pizza? Mm. Or is that just me? <laughs> and he laughed and said, Daniela, there's nothing wrong with red wine and pizza. But then quite seriously, I looked at him and I said, well, good luck with that if you move into aged care because there's going to be a whole support plan that says that's not nutritious enough for you or good for you. Mm. The second you move in, everything be- is owned by medicine. And I don't think that's what any of us want. Would, would you want that? No. No, me either. Well, you mentioned there that you've been working in the the Royal Commission process and you're an expert witness for a a panel on it. You mentioned there that perhaps change should come first from legislation or should come from the government's approach. Do you think we we need this top-down approach? I think five years ago I would have said, well, that's nonsense. But it's necessary. There needs to be in place some absolute non-negotiables they shouldn't be up for discussion. They shouldn't be up to someone's decision about what their model of care is and who's bought the latest copyrighted model of care and sent their staff off to expensive training and who has staff when they come back into a system. For instance, just day-to-day life, like waking up. You know, they'll send staff to expensive training or dementia training that'll say, well, it's important to be flexible. And, uh, but then they come back to work and having been a personal care, I can tell you, you get there at seven and if you've got to get eight residents up, you've got between the hours of seven and round about eight to get them in the dining room for breakfast. Mm. That's just a basic operational non-negotiable. Meals need to be flexible. They can do it in the Qantas lounge. They should be able to do it for our most vulnerable people. So their staff aren't run off their feet working with people's bodies. It's it's time-consuming work if you want to do it with dignity to help a person get ready for the day. 
get their identity in place, get their lipstick on, get their hair right, get their clothes on so they feel like themselves and not these people who are dragged in and out of a shower into a dining room. So an operational non-negotiable has to support human rights, has to be. All meals need to be flexible and people need access to food in between set mealtimes. And I think consistency in staffing is a non-negotiable. It has to be. There needs to be some operational non-negotiables that the whole industry does. I think there needs to be someone with legislative connection to government, but there need to be external from government who oversee this. Someone who takes the position of like the United Nations. Mm -hmm. So as each organisation gets given these non-negotiables, they create action plans to put them in place and they have to be transparent with their own stakeholders and then they have to come and report back to the UN. Well, it's not really the UN, it's whatever this body um, sanctioned with codified authority. As each organisation begins to get these key operational and practice non-negotiables in place and that's just the start. Could you give us a few other examples of things that you, you might think should be non-negotiable? Absolutely. Things around privacy. At the moment, people come into aged care and it's just assumed that everyone can hear their business. So in a lot of the electronic care planning, they've got a drop-down list called Next of Kin Mm -hmm. and it's got no link to whether that person has any challenges that might need someone to help them with decisions or to hear their personal information. It's got no link to legal powers. It's just the second someone moves in, it's assumed someone else will speak for them or at the very least have to give their sanction to decision, be there to hear the care plan reviews and to give their opinion and information. I mean, that would be considered illegal in any other context. Mm. Can you imagine your GP calling your partner and saying, oh, yeah, well, this is what's happened to Ash today. We put him on some antibiotics. You know, you could sue them. But for some reason, older people don't get that same kind of respect. And again, we have to start by saying most of this kind of paternalism is completely invisible because the paternalism has been so normalised. To say to these really well-meaning people in this food group who are really, really good people, to say to them, can you just stop? Why have you got nutritionists calling the shots? Why don't you have asking actual individuals what they might want to eat or not eat. And people go, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. Why didn't we think about that? Because this paternalism is so normalised in day-to-day life, all of these things that a lot of them quite horrific, so normalised that they become invisible. They just become this is the way we do things around here, really just business as usual. Mm. The OECD puts up at at least 70% of older people living in these institutions have the kind of cognitive changes that would mean they couldn't engage in resident surveys, they couldn't do their own assessments, they cannot engage in complaint processes. But again, nobody's gone, well, obviously we're using the wrong methods if only 30% at the most this works for. So those kind of non-negotiables to make sure, as you would in disability, you wouldn't have a place where people living in wheelchairs could come that only had stairs. Mm. But in the disability field, those kind of things are a lot more, wow, that, that's wrong. But we lose that once people get older. And of course, that's because of ageism, dementiaism, and just that deeply embedded paternalism that comes by saying we'll make them eat food that's good and nutritious whether they want it or not. 
You're listening to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. We're on a mission to examine ways to improve the quality of care and the quality of life for seniors. And each week, we're bringing age care industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals directly to you to share their knowledge, stories, and experiences. In season one of the podcast, we delivered thought-provoking and meaningful episodes covering consumer experience, dementia care, palliative care, service transformation, and research and innovation. And we've got plenty more amazing guests lined up for season two. So maybe you'd like to partner with us and have your message showcased directly to our rapidly growing audience of aged care executives and people working within the industry. For advertising inquiries, please email acepodcast at silver, that's S-I-L-V-R, adventures.com.au. Now let's get back to this week's guest. Starting with the top-down approach, that if it's legislation first and it's enforcing these minimum standards, where do you see the responsibility of, of aged care providers, of the industry itself? I think we, with, within the framework of what we set up, we make it these are the non-negotiables and we, give, we make, as we said before, their responsibility first and foremost is to get the non-negotiables right. And then they have to, you know, they have to come to that external body and say, "Well, we said we'd have that done in three months, but we're not there yet. This is the reason why. This is how." They have to be transparent to everyone around these non-negotiables. And of course, there's so much of what we're talking about now isn't legislatable. Mm. And even if it was, it wouldn't cover this. So these are human rights laws, and they're also human rights norms. So I think the problem with aged care and the best, most well-meaning people around culture change and people talk about person-centred care, which is about really individualised care. But again, if you don't move that paternalism and this making people do stuff for their own good, usually their own clinical or health good, health isn't the only human right, then you're still getting people who are bossed around just in a much more individualised way. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, John will play lawn bowls to improve dexterity. Yeah, no. <laughs> John plays lawn bowls because he really likes to get away from his wife once a week. He likes having a beer with his mates and he's quite competitive. Isn't that enough? Not once you move into aged care. All of a sudden, it's got to have these medical kind of therapeutic. We've just got to leave people alone, honestly. So the norms, the norms will take longer, but I think we've got to stop working on staff psychology, which is where all the pressure has gone now. So mm. it's up to staff for them to see the whole person, for them to be better people. It you know doesn't allow for bad people or people just having a bad day. Mm. The kind of practices that we're talking about need to be observable and measurable, which means if you use pet names, you can't work with vulnerable people. If you're going to go, come on, darling, there's a good girl, you can't work in this space. That should be a practice non-negotiable. Those types of things, and the tone of voice and just that air of authority, bossing people around, all of those practice non-negotiables that you can witness need to stop. And it doesn't matter what culture you come from. You know, I'm not trying to get into people's heads. I'm just saying if you work in this space, this is what you can and cannot do. And I think the work to date has gone really in that philosophical kind of let's try and turn all these aged care workers into nicer people rather than let's not be so arrogant. (laughs) Let's just put them in a system where they're not forced to wrench people out of bed, that they're not praised 
when they get four people done quickly, where the actual operational environment supports their human rights practice rather than works against it, actually makes it impossible. And I've got to say, it's very stressful for staff. They don't want to work that way. I, I have to admit that before coming into this conversation, I I think I had an idea about there would be a difficult process to kind of, I think I used the word unify in one of the questions and, and what you're unifying industry and government under the Royal Commission's findings or anything that comes out of that. The way you're speaking seems to be ignoring the, the need to unify and just setting this is the hard limits and you need to comply with these because we're talking about individuals. Believe me, when people are given rules and absolutes, it is easier. They are combined in that one purpose. And we do know that out of the Royal Commission will come a new Aged Care Act. And that Aged Care Act will be underpinned by human rights principles. So we're going to get into aged care what was missing since the Act came into place and it was said oh, we're going to the government was going to relinquish their own responsibility for our citizens and give it to the free market. And that's all well and good, except then you miss out on everything. Then you miss out on the protections that human rights law would bring and, and social workers and human rights lawyers into that space because now there's this pretend market-based system where market forces are going to determine quality. And again, human rights puts our attention firmly on the most vulnerable who to now actually they've got no protections they're not protected by law they're not protected by norms they're not protected by these um, surveys or by market ideology these people are the most vulnerable these are your parents this is you when you get older these are our sisters and brothers and parents and lovers this is there's nothing right now to protect them because what is currently in place is set up for people who are really functioning in a way that they can either vote with their pocket or complain. So I think it's exciting. I think the commitment of the Royal Commission moving forward to build what it does on human rights principles, which, believe me, brings with it non-negotiables. So to, to, to define them for industry, so it's not grey anymore. We've had this kind of system that looks at outcome. You can't do that. There's There's got to be non-negotiables that underpin the way this service is provided in Australia. At the moment, I could take any older person and put them in a doubly locked dementia-specific unit and there would be nothing they could do about it. Mm. I could have a daughter saying mum's a bit, you know, she gets a bit aggressive, straight into a dementia and then, then her house is up for sale. Mm. I'm telling you there's a myriad. And, and guess what? All of the surveys and work they've done with the Royal Commission, they released a survey a while ago and they admittedly said we didn't get a chance to really look carefully in, at financial elder abuse and they certainly didn't look closely enough at sexual abuse. So human rights would create a level playing field that everyone can understand and we're going to need a role that's like a human rights executive for Australia who makes sure that, and not a medical head, a human rights head because, as I said, health is one, only one human right and often you and I choose to forgo health to have a drink. 
mm-hmm. have a cigarette, not exercise like we should, stay up all night binge watching Netflix. Am I just talking about myself? No. Um, <laughs> but we, we, we make decisions that aren't always in our best health interests and people living in aged care should be able to make the same kind of choices that you and I can make and not have to wait for their family to say it's okay, for the medical community to say it's okay, or for it to fit into the schedule of the aged care home meal times. Mm. I think it will bring everyone together. Having that human rights lens, a new aged care act underpinned by human rights principles, I think once and for all will really create some clarity. Great. What else is known and, and what is hoped for? Like where, where does the we've talked about a lot of things that should happen here. I guess I'm trying to understand through your experience in the Royal Commission, what do you know that will happen after this? I know what I hope. I hope that home care gets more funding so people aren't on waiting lists and that that's seen as unacceptable. Mm. Again, I was speaking to someone just yesterday who said, what do you think those intergenerational programs in aged care? I said, you mean normal living? (laughs) We all live intergenerationally. Just put money into home care so people can live in normal neighbourhoods. You know, it's this crazy thinking. It'll actually probably save money in the end, but I hope that they stop keeping people on those waiting lists in home care. I hope and pray that they provide more support to the family members who are supporting vulnerable people who aren't going into aged care because that's an abuse of government trying to squeeze out extra resources from families who are already run off their feet and stressed. There should be a range of options for respite and stay in overnight help for people. Um, we need to be focusing on that. But I, mm. I deeply, deeply hope that, you know, I know that you could tinker around the edges and you could talk about staff ratios and skill mix and a whole range of things, but unless that's not enough. All of that will come if you put human rights at the centre of care and of care practices. I think human rights will lay all of that out. I really do for the other recommendations for certain. Great. Now, you mentioned the problem of funding. Are you anticipating that through a human rights-based approach, we'll see more funding distributed? Because that seems to be coming from the industry, that seems to be a key concern that, yes, we'd love to make these changes, but we don't have the funding or the staffing to do them. Do you think that that's something that will change? Mm, I hear that every day. I I think... Um, as the Royal Commission has pointed out, we need absolute transparency around where our money's going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so $28 in aged care services, 18 billion in residential aged care, 13 from government, another further five from consumers themselves. We need to know where that's going, but I don't know that that's the question. I think the question is, as a society, and this is not on government and it's not on providers, this is as an Australian community, whether it's franking credits or whatever, this is about the Australian community answering a question like, how do we want to grow old together in Australia? That's the question. The money side, this this is us. This is our 
trajectory if we're lucky enough to get old. These are citizens who have just as much as right to live lives in the community and engaging in the community. At the moment, we've got a system that sets up for, it's perfectly set up for about 20 years of people's lives. It's no longer good fit for purpose. So it's the Australian community who's going to have to say, let's stop talking about value for money and start talking about how we want to grow old together. So the government, no matter who you vote in, is going to have to be guided by the community and it's up to the community to say, no, this we, we don't want this to happen anymore. We don't want people to live this way, not, not on my watch. And that's where the money will come from. We've got enough money in government to support vulnerable people. There's some people living with profound disabilities in their own home that are getting between $200,000 and $800,000 a year to help them live on independently, but not once you turn 65. Yeah, that's not okay. So do, let me play the cynic here for a moment. We're talking about a conversation change and we're talking about the Australian community gathering around this issue and saying enough is enough and we need to change the way that we're approaching this. This hasn't happened yet, so what's going to need to happen for it to be the case? That's a fantastic question too. Good, good great questions and confronting questions. I think it's so important for everybody to say it hasn't happened so far. All of this money we've spent, all of this research, all of this money that all of us invested and we continue to invest every year and we're spending all this money on something nobody wants. Mm. We're spending all of this money on something where we get those graphic images that came out of the Royal Commission, like those horrific videos of people being abused. This is what the systems create. And we've had people selling person-centred care products for 20 years. We've had them selling all these models of care and architecture and still it's failed. So I think the first point is to say it's failed. And that's the starting point because I don't think people are aware that I don't think they're aware of what needs to happen and how things can be different. They really can be. These, you know, we can live together and not treat each other in these sometimes house of horrors. Mm-hmm. You know, you have people being drugged for dementia behaviours when they're just protesting being wrenched out of bed at seven in the morning. You now we're drugging people for not wanting to have showers when they're just not in the mood. It's you know, this is that's a house of horrors. Yeah. At the moment, the answer has been to train staff around person-centred care and and how victim-blaming is that for staff when the whole system's set up and codified and even incentivised? Aged care homes get paid more money the more behaviours they find. Can we just circle back for a second there just so I, I can really understand because I haven't heard that before. You're saying that aged cares will receive additional funding based on how many incidents of dementia-related behaviour they record? Yeah, yeah. So people are on a behaviour chart Mm -hmm. and that, um, gosh, I'm so glad I haven't been put on a behaviour chart because the type of things that are written there are are things most of us would do. Like if you just get up and think, oh, I'm so bored, I'll have a bit of a walk around, that's wandering. Uh, Yeah, that's wandering, that's a behaviour, that's fundable. I can send you some information on this, but it's so linked to people receiving antipsychotics and other drugs to sort of other psychotropic medication to calm them down when it could be based on the way they were spoken to or it could be, yeah, just a recognition that 
Dementia is a real mystery and we're not always going to know what's going on for someone, but we can be decent to them because the main reason we should be interested in why someone is distressed is because we're humans and not monsters and we think, oh, what can I do to make it better? Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes, I mean, the first thing we should be looking at is pain. But when staff are told that all of these expressions are just symptoms of dementia, they even cut off from things they'd normally notice in their friends and family and even in themselves. So, oh, oh, she's calling out that's because that's a symptom of dementia rather than, I wonder what's going on for her. Is she in pain? Does she need something? Or is it just a really valid protest about being shoved into this place they can't get out of? Really, when you think about it, it's a house of horrors and it's become so normalised and so business as usual that it's people aren't questioning it. So I think that's where a human rights lens is going to really help too because these things are unacceptable. Yeah. Danielle, we've, we've covered a lot and in a lot of really interesting detail. <laughs> is there anything else you want to talk about today? No, it's been a, a fantastic conversation actually gone places I hadn't preempted which is always really lovely and thank you for your thoughtful questions especially the nuances of you know will it be peak bodies government you know all of these nuances which of course are the questions and hopefully hopefully the Royal Commission helps and what the government accept from that and decide to go with I think you'll get bipartisan support for the human rights principles and framework and I think of anything that could happen that's that's where we need to start. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Daniela. Thank you. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silver, that's S-I-L-V-R, adventures.com.au. See you next week.